of the theme this morning is the empty nature of awareness. Normally in Vipassana practice, all the instructions and all our attention is directed toward the objects that we're paying attention to. Breath, sensations in the body, sounds, moods and emotions, thoughts, and so on. But in this meditation that we just uh, did, the Big Mind guided meditation, there was an instruction to turn the attention not to the objects, but to the awareness itself. So I'm curious, and if we could just take a couple of comments, they don't need to be on the microphone, I'll just repeat them back. When you make this shift from focusing on objects and then turn the attention to the awareness itself, does that create an inner shift in your experience? What does that inner shift feel like for you? Yeah. Into hypnotic state. Were you still present? Were you still noticing? Okay. So something like hypnosis. What other shifts did people notice? Twisting, falling, shifting, a bit confused. That falling, maybe that's a little bit like the airplane analogy that Sally mentioned a few nights ago. Mm-hmm. Okay. Questioning. Loss of boundaries, wobbly. In both those comments, what the, the word that comes to my mind is groundless. Yeah. Takes away some kind of ground. Laura? Yeah, a kind of relief from the claustrophobic nature of the mind like stepping outside in the morning and one last comment someone over here yeah Maureen Yeah, her comment was that awareness doesn't care what comes in front of it. It could be anger, it could be a thought of universal brotherhood. doesn't make any difference, and sometimes that's a little bit confusing. Okay, so, you know, all these comments indicate that when we turn toward this direction, some kind of shift happens, and let's say that, you know, maybe a common feature is kind of a loosening of uh, fixation or what we're normally set upon, and putting it into a, a maybe a bigger container, 
And sometimes it's not clear, you know, exactly what that bigger container is, and we might feel a little adrift or tumbling in the middle of that. And by clarifying what it is and what the experience is, we can make this a kind of reliable part of our meditation. We can take some of the conceptual confusion out and use it to more to that quality of relief or release and that impartiality that was mentioned. So this is a, a valuable technique. It's a technique I found really useful in my years of practice. And I want to talk this morning a little about how to understand it and how to practice with it. Someone mentioned that uh, the question came up, was this awareness or was it consciousness or what was really going on? I'm going to say that um, Dharma teachers use the word awareness differently and have different meanings. So every time a Dharma teacher says awareness, it's always good to ask them, what do you mean by that? Because it's a slippery word. Sometimes it's used to mean mindfulness. Saida Utejaniya in Burma has a book called Awareness Alone is Not Enough. That's its title in English. But by awareness, he means mindfulness. He's saying mindfulness alone is not enough. Oh, really? I thought mindfulness was the whole path. No, what mindfulness needs is wisdom. The mindfulness is a means to awaken wisdom. Wisdom is really what uh, liberates. Other teachers use it as, uh, as consciousness. And this morning in the discussion, that's what I'm going to use it as. We'll use it synonymous with consciousness, but a little bit different context. Consciousness we usually use to mean the knowing of an individual object, right? Sight consciousness, ear consciousness, nose consciousness, etc. It's that which knows one thing arising. I'm going to use awareness to kind of mean this quality that you were feeling into in this guided meditation, which is the extent of consciousness, the range of conscious activity, that broad kind of vast quality. But it's still consciousness. Okay, so that's what I'll, I'll use it as. It's kind of, it was very interesting to me after doing years and years of Vipassana practice to find out that I could tune into this quality of consciousness itself. And it reminded me of something I'd read in D.H. Lawrence. It's interesting how artists sometimes go really quickly to the essence of what's going on in the mind. And Lawrence had some passage, I can't remember it exactly, but it said something like, it's as though we've been sitting by a fire and we've been really entranced and enchanted by the objects that are illuminated by the firelight but we've never thought to look at the fire itself. The role of awareness is to illuminate the objects of the world and of the body. But this is the time we can take a look at the light itself. What is that light of awareness or consciousness? What is its nature? This in some way is more or uh, equally fundamental, equally important. So as we investigate this quality of awareness or consciousness, you know, the, some of the confusion and the drifting that was mentioned is an indication that it's not so easy to find this quality of mind because awareness is not an object. 
consciousness is not an object. Everything else that goes on, we can say, you know, it takes form and it's an object. Sound, sensation, breath, thought, emotion. Even though emotion's a little insubstantial, we can still take it as an object and pay attention to it. But awareness isn't an object like that. It's what's knowing. So being when, I, when you're asked to, to become aware of awareness, that's a little bit of a double bind. And that's part of the confusion in this practice. Yet it can be really suggestive. You know, and I think a lot of you felt some shift happens when you make even that attempt, even though it's not a clear meditation instruction. This is from Ajahn Chah. If you have difficulty finding awareness, it's like you're riding on a horse and you're asking, where's the horse? It's happening all the time. It's filling our world. It's making our world. And then we go, well, where is it? Ajahn Sumedho put it like this. Just like the question, can you see your own eyes? Nobody can see their own eyes. I can see your eyes, but I can't see my eyes. I'm sitting right here. I've got two eyes, and I can't see them. But you can see my eyes. Looking in a mirror, I can see a reflection, but that's not my eyes. It's a reflection of my eyes. But there's no real need for me to see my eyes because I can see. It's ridiculous, isn't Isn't it? If If I started saying, why can't I see my own eyes, you'd think, Ajahn Sumedho's getting weird, isn't he? So we may not be able to see awareness like an object, but we know that it's active, that it's functioning, because we're aware, right? There's no doubt about that, is there? As you're sitting here, you know you're aware. I'm not seeing many nods. (laughs) Do you know you're aware? Okay, thank you. Now I'm seeing nods. Wei Wu Wei uh, is a very interesting writer. He was an Englishman living in Hong Kong who started to get into Chan and Zen writings and then he kind of put his understanding in these pithy little uh, epigraphs. And one of them that he said is, what we are looking for is what is looking. This is the sense of it too. We're looking for this quality of awareness but that's what is looking. That's not so easy to find. So think of awareness or consciousness as this knowing of the phenomena or the appearances of our senses. It's not an object because really it's more of an activity. You know, knowing is a verb and the consciousness is doing that. That's its functioning. But then, you know, as you kind of get familiar with that, okay, consciousness is the activity of knowing Then the question kind of comes up, well, that's the action. What is the agent? What is it that's doing the knowing? Joseph Goldstein likes to give this as a meditation instruction. You'll be walking along, and instead of saying, I feel the sensations in my feet or legs, he'll say, sensations are being known. 
putting it in a passive voice so there's not an I. Sensations are being known. And then he poses the question, known by what? What is doing that knowing? Can you, can you look and find it? What happens when you look? There was a little shift in the mood of the room when I asked the question, what is the agent? Did you notice a shift in yourself? What was that shift? How would you describe it? Again, we don't have to have the mic, but I'll repeat. Sorry? Really looking? Yeah. Really looking. Betsy? Imponderable. Sorry? Koan. Yeah. Not knowing. More spacious, less me. All these things are really good indicators. Sarah? Dropping into it, dropping into awareness. Yeah, these are all really good reflections of what happens. The mind kind of stops, the thinking mind kind of stops, the ego selfing, because it really is imponderable. And in that stopping, there's an interest of looking and seeing. Like a koan brings that heightened sense of interest. What's there? And yet, did you find anything? Could you locate that agent? No. So this is actually significant. You may think it was frustrating, but it was actually significant. This is from a Tibetan teacher named Shabkar, who was a great yogi uh, in the early 1800s, actually late 1700s, early 1800s, spent years and years in a cave and in the wilderness, and then wrote a lot of uh, wonderful teachings. And his uh, the book that speaks to me the most is called Flight of the Garuda. And uh, this is his account of the looking. Now, come up close and listen. When you look carefully, you won't find the merest speck of real mind you can put your finger on and say, this is it. And not finding anything is an incredible find. Friends, to start with, mind doesn't emerge from anything. It's primordially empty. There's nothing there to hold on to. It isn't anywhere. It has no shape or color. And in the end, nowhere to go. So this is kind of a discovery in meditation. When we look to find this agent and we don't find it, we just are kind of in this space of knowing or looking or awareness, whatever you want to call it. And that's an important move. That movement is a a beautiful place to be in, meditatively speaking. There are a number of words uh, in Pali that we tend to translate as mind. And uh, I don't really want to get into uh, that complication. There's uh, citta, there's uh, vijnana, more often translated as consciousness, but sometimes translated as mind, and mano. 
Mono is the word that's used in the six sense bases. When it says eye and sights, ear and sounds, da-da-da. It says mind and mind objects. That word is mono. But let's say for the purpose of our conversation, we'll uh, use mind to mean this agent that's doing the knowing. So let's just define mind as that which knows. Okay? And other things that are part of, of mind's activity, like thoughts and emotions and feeling and perception, we'll call those the objects of mind, as it's described in those six senses. So mind is what we're, what we're going to use for this discussion. Mind is what's doing the knowing, which is consciousness. Is that clear enough? This is an, it's not clear. Okay. The question is, uh, I said a moment ago, we looked and we couldn't find an agent, and now I'm saying the agent is mind. But maybe it's mind that's unfindable. Maybe there, maybe there is something, but we can't find it. Because I'm using awareness, the question is why not use awareness? Because I'm using awareness synonymous with consciousness, which is doing the knowing, which we can feel. We can feel the knowing taking place. Right? I asked you a moment ago if you knew you were aware, and finally heads nodded. (laughs) Right? So you know you're aware, that means you know consciousness is taking place. Right? We can know consciousness. You can't find it as an object, but you can feel it happening. So think of consciousness as the activity of knowing. We can feel that knowing is happening. If you doubt it, think about what it means to be unconscious. When you fainted or in a coma or go to sleep or go into an operation, you're not conscious for some period. And what does that mean? That means things aren't happening to you. You lose the awareness of things happening. But as long as you're awake and your senses are functioning, you know things are happening, that knowing is consciousness. Okay? So, we ask the question, what is the agent of consciousness? We can't find it. But we're going to use this term mind. Maybe it doesn't even exist. Maybe I'm putting a label on something that doesn't even exist. But we're just going to play with that. That's what this exploration is. So I'm asking you to take a little bit of a leap of faith. If I use the word the agent behind consciousness, you could grant me that and we'd all know it might be fictitious, right? Because you can't find it. But I just want to shorten it and use the word mind just in this exercise. Other times in general Buddhist language, we might use mind to mean something else. We might use it synonymous with consciousness. But just for this morning, I want to use mind to mean that which is doing the knowing. And then we want to explore whether that might exist or not exist, or if it exists, in what way it might exist. Is there a question in the back? And can you say it loud? So.
So the question is about, are we really unconscious when we're asleep or when we're drugged? So I just use that as a little example of how to think about what being unconscious would mean. It would mean the experience of not knowing for a period. So it's not really uh, central to the discussion of whether there's a little bit of consciousness actually there, which there probably is in sleep and there certainly is in dreams. But the general experience of not knowing is something that we all touch from time to time. So it was just to illustrate what knowing might feel like. Okay? Not satisfied? Okay. Okay. So don't worry too much about my use of the word unconscious. It was really just to try and illustrate what consciousness means, which is the knowing of things that are happening. So if there's ever been a period when it's felt like you weren't knowing things, that's just by way of contrast to show what knowing feels like when we're awake. Yeah. I should refine this presentation. <laughs> the period of not knowing is not really that critical. I mean, whether you do or don't know isn't, isn't really the central point. I mean, there are periods when I fainted, for example, that I come out of the faint and there was a period where I don't remember anything happening. So that's all I can say. I don't remember anything happening. Maybe that's the best way to say it. It's not that nothing was happening. Maybe I was aware of something, but I have no memory of it. So it feels to me like nothing was happening and that I was unconscious then. But I can't swear to that. Can... I need to, we need to go forward, sorry. So, if you, can, if you can relate to the question of consciousness as being awake and knowing things, that's all we need in order to move forward. Okay. So, this not finding, being able, looking for the agent that we're calling mind and not finding it, is a sign, as Shabkar said, that there's some emptiness to it. This agent of mind, not findable, not discoverable, so we could say that that points to its emptiness, its empty nature. But knowing is happening. So, this, what we call mind, you can't entirely say it doesn't exist. Because knowing keeps happening from it. So, we say that its nature is twofold. It's empty and it's knowing. These are the two qualities of that agent that we're calling mind. Empty and it's knowing. 
This is a quote from the study guide, quote number 57. This mind, O monks, is radiant, but it is obscured by visiting defilements. You can read the rest of the quote later. But the Buddha also points to the sense of the mind being radiant. He doesn't exactly define what he means by that mind, but there is this sense. This quality of uh, knowing is sometimes described as awareness, sometimes described as luminosity, clarity, or radiance. All these words are used for this power that cognizes. The cognizing power has the ability to illuminate our experience, to illuminate phenomena as they arise. The empty aspect of this mind is like space, as we saw in the meditation. When we talk about this field of awareness as being like vast space, vast empty space. This has the, the qual. there are kind of two qualities connected with this emptiness and space-like quality. The first is that it can hold all the phenomena. Just as space holds all the phenomena of the physical world, mind holds all the phenomena of the sensory world, of the six senses. The second quality, because of its basic emptiness, is nothing is there from the beginning. Anything that appears in this thing we're calling mind can also go away. Nothing is there from the beginning. It's part of its basic emptiness. So part of what this means is that any afflictive emotions any karmic patterns, any ignorance, any suffering aren't there from the beginning so they can end. This is kind of the side of dependent arising that we've been talking about from the beginning. Whatever is of the nature to arise also has the possibility of ceasing. So that's the beauty of this empty quality of mind. Anything that arises can also end. So when we do a meditation like this and we look at this nature, we probably see these, both these qualities together. There's an empty quality, which is like sky or space, and there's a knowing quality, which is the awareness, the functioning, that illuminates all the phenomena. These two always go together. So we say that the basic nature of mind is emptiness and awareness combined. Ajahn Buddhadasa said, we should call the mind emptiness, but because of its awareness we call it mind. So its basic nature is empty from the beginning. Everything within it can come and go. But because of this cognizing power, its functioning power, we call it 
mind. So these two aspects of the emptiness and the awareness are always joined. They make up you know, the nature, the basic qualities of mind. We've been talking a lot during the retreat about when there's not clinging or grasping or selfing, then something shifts within us. And out of that place which we're calling emptiness of self, there's more space, there's more equanimity, there's peace, there's ease. Also from that empty space, you know, the beautiful qualities of, of heart also come out easily, naturally. Qualities like love, compassion, joy, contentment. When we're not bound up in the struggle of grasping and clinging and selfing. So another way to that empty place is to notice this basic nature of mind. It's the same kind of space that we're talking about opening up. It's the same kind of inner quality that we're talking about coming to. As we've been talking about emptiness of self, this looking for mind takes us to the same, same destination, you might say. So another way to empty of self is to notice the mind's basic nature, which is this combination of emptiness and knowing. Emptiness and knowing. So it's said that when we can recognize that, you look in, you see it's emptiness, but there's still knowing, then there's a third quality that's active, and that's called responsiveness. Or sometimes the, this factor is described as unceasing compassionate activity. And the meaning is that when we are empty of self, when we see that empty nature, then compassion can flow out naturally. Love can flow out naturally. Joy can flow out naturally. The third thing is uh, when we recognize this empty aware nature, then it opens up the third aspect of the nature of mind, which is responsiveness or sometimes called unceasing compassionate activity. That responsiveness, it said, rests on the recognition of emptiness, emptiness and awareness. Or it's another way of saying when the self is empty and you know it. Then these beautiful qualities come out naturally, come out easily. This is a continuation of that uh, quote from Shabkar. Mind's nature is vivid as a flawless piece of crystal, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, ceaselessly responsive. So this has the three parts that we talked about. Intrinsically empty, it's the empty aspect. Naturally radiant, 
like the quotation from the Buddha, this is the illuminating quality that cognizes phenomena, ceaselessly responsive, which is the opening up the beautiful qualities of love, compassion, wisdom, joy, and so on. Uh, let's say always available. But we'll come back to that question. We'll come back to that question. You could say there are actually two different interpretations of this ceaselessly responsive. One is that it's always responding by knowing. I've heard some teachers put it this way. It's always responding by knowing. And that's ongoing. The other way that I've heard it explained is when there's the recognition then it responds with the beautiful qualities of love and compassion. So this threefold makeup... Yeah, question. The clarity aspect. There's a cognizing aspect and an empty aspect. So the empty aspect is seen by the clarity aspect. So there are these three aspects of emptiness, awareness, and responsiveness, these together make up what's called Buddha nature. So I want to talk a little bit about what that word means. This concept was not in the Buddha's teachings. It was not in the early Mahayana. It came in the later Mahayana from a school called the Yogacharans. They emerged about the 4th century of the modern era in India, sometimes also called the Chittamatrans, or mind-only school. The Sanskrit word that's been translated as Buddha nature is actually Tathagata Garbha. Tathagata is the word the Buddha called himself, the thus come one, the one thus come. So it means a fully awakened being. Garbha means womb. So it doesn't exactly mean Buddha nature. It actually means womb of the Buddhas. These three qualities of mind then are the uh, ground or the womb from which fully awakened beings come or from which full awakening comes. But in the original Sanskrit, the sense is more of a potential than of a, of a fixed or abiding quality. When it's called Buddha nature, it feels like it's something fixed in here and now. When it's considered as a, as a womb, then it's more of a potential. So think of it as somewhere in between these two. It means that every human being has this seed or potential of Buddhahood within. And more than every human being, every sentient being has these qualities. The dogs and cats and turtles and birds and cows and worms all have this potential of these with these three parts. Sometimes people say because there's Buddha nature it means that uh, compassion is permanent or a fixed part of us. But I understand it rather as the potential is there, 
but it comes out when circumstances are appropriate. Even when someone is quite awakened, it's not necessarily the case that compassion is present in every mind moment. If an awakened heart looks on suffering, then compassion emerges. If an awakened heart looks on joy, then sympathetic joy emerges. If an awakened heart isn't being stimulated, then perhaps it just rests in equanimity. So there are many, uh, many different beautiful qualities that come out of this responsiveness. And compassion, is, compassion is one, and that potential is there for every one of us. So, is this quality of mind permanent or impermanent? So let's go back a minute to consciousness. Consciousness or vijnana is the fifth of the aggregates. Is consciousness permanent or impermanent according to the Buddhist teachings? Impermanent, yeah. All the aggregates are characterized by impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, not self. So this quality of consciousness comes and goes. So I would say the same for awareness the way I'm using it here today. But when you look at this field, does it seem to come and go? When you look now, is awareness happening? And when you look now, is awareness happening? The knowing of the awareness? Yeah, the knowing of the awareness isn't always happening because it depends on our turning our attention to it. But every time you look for it, is it there? Okay. Is awareness external? Okay, the question is awareness internal or external as the you know the guided meditation highlighted one of the one of the ways that awareness is both inside and outside. So I understand it as being kind of beyond the qualities of internal or external. And to what extent we share it, um, my understanding is that there is some individuation even within awareness or consciousness so that there's a kind of individual consciousness, stream of consciousness within each being. And of course, they, you know, they inter- we interpenetrate each other, but there's some separateness to the consciousness. Tony? Yes. So the comment was that this awareness is here now, here now, here now, but it's dependent on this organism. 
which it is. It depends, you know, if we didn't have the body and the five senses, we don't know what would happen to that awareness. So does that mean that it's coming and going? Or if we fall asleep, it's not active, is it coming and going? What's that? <laughs> the worms. Yes. Um, so let's, let's hold that question uh, in the background for a minute and see if this next piece will, will help resolve it. Because what I'm going to suggest, this is just a model and a way of looking. I don't want to nail this down. I want to suggest that this agent called mind might be permanent. Or let's say not subject to arising and ceasing. But the functioning of that agent through knowing objects comes and goes. Yeah. What I want to suggest, and this is just one model. I'll get to that in a minute. Some schools like this model. Some schools hate this model within Buddhism. But I, so I'm just presenting one possibility. This thing we're calling mind may not be subject to arising and passing. But its activity, which is knowing individual things, is always coming and going. But the suggestion um, that there may be some degree of awareness through sleep, through anesthesia, through fainting, uh, would be supported by this concept of mind being permanent. And death, that's a big question. That's, a, that's another big question. So let's say at least for the span of a human lifetime, maybe this mind is not subject to arising and passing. But its activity as knowing is coming and going all the time. And then what happens at death? Okay. First of all, there are different schools on this basic question. The, the core Theravadan schools that you might find influenced by the Abhidhamma and the Vasudhimaga, as you might find in Burma and Sri Lanka, would throw this concept out the window of anything like mind not subject to arising and passing. But other schools, uh, many of the Mahayana schools, certainly the Yogacara, this is their core view, to a certain extent in Chan and Zen, schools that have been influenced by Yogacara, including Dzogchen and Mahamudra, would go along with this, that this agent called mind is lasting. And at least, you know, we'll just take it permanent for the duration of this body, not subject to arising and ceasing. So there is one, you know, we talked about all six sense. All six senses, their phenomena are subject to arising and passing. There's one element in Theravadan Buddhism that's not subject to arising and passing. What is that? The unconditioned, nirvana. The suggestion then in these other schools that hold mind not subject to arising and ceasing is that mind and nirvana are synonymous. That's why this becomes an interesting question. So what that says is it's not awareness that's permanent. It's not consciousness that's permanent. Rather, it's the source or 
that behind, that which is doing the knowing, that may be permanent. Another way to say it is, maybe nirvana has a quality of cognizance associated with it. Now, this is a hard thing to, to kind of conceptualize, but I want to give an, an example of how you might reconcile these two views. Consciousness is impermanent. We all agree on that. Maybe this source of consciousness is lasting. So here's an image. Let's say you're on the outer edge of the solar system and you're looking away from the sun. Your back is to the sun. As you're looking out into space, what do you see? Let's say you're looking in an area where there are no stars, just for the sake of argument. What do you see? Yeah, it's blackness. Is it the black that's a color black, or is it the black that's an absence of light? It's a total absence of light, isn't there? But is there actually light in that space? Your back is to the sun. The area you're looking at is filled with sunlight, isn't it? It's pervaded by sunlight. So there's light, but we don't see it that could be considered the unborn at this point. Now, let's just say from below, a meteorite comes streaking through that space. Do you see it? Yeah. There's a bright flash of light off that meteorite, which is the reflection of the sunlight off the object back to us. That's the born. That's an appearance. That's an arising in knowing. So let's say in this example, mind is the sunlight filling empty space. Consciousness is that flash of light as the meteorite streaks through. As the meteorite passes away, what happens to the image of it? Gone. Arise and pass. So this is just an image. Analogies aren't perfect, but it suggests a way that this agent called mind could be lasting, but the activity called consciousness could come and go. So this is the presentation from uh, from some schools, and one of the schools that kind of follows this is the Thai forest tradition. So you'll find this concept strongly in teachers like Ajahn Chah, Ajahn Mahabua, Ajahn Sumedho, Ajahn Buddhadasa. They all express this in different ways. Uh, Let's see, I have a nice quote from Ajahn Jumnian about this. This is Ajahn Jumnian, who's a Thai forest teacher who's been at Spirit Rock uh, for a number of years. This is from a dialogue that we had with him in 1997. Within this body, there are the six elements, earth, air, water, fire, space, and consciousness. The best way to develop a great awareness, and the word that he used for great awareness was mahasati, great mindfulness, is to rest your attention within that knowing space of consciousness, in the pure space of knowing, If you understand and can rest in this pure knowing, that is the place of the deathless. 
from this pure consciousness that's unmoved by what arises, then you see the phenomena of the world which all have the nature to arise and pass away. Phenomena show their dharmas of impermanence, and this other is the dharma of the deathless. So there's that sense that the knowing continues because it's the activity of what doesn't pass. And all the phenomena come and go. When we rest in the knowing, then we touch that peace. We have that peace that is unchanging. Question? Yeah, no, it's a good question. The question is, within this uh, faculty of mind, there's another quality which is of a will or intention which chooses which phenomena to notice and what, you know, what is that faculty or how does that work beyond conditioning. A lot of those choices of volition are strongly conditioned. Maybe, maybe all are strongly conditioned. But it's certainly a central quality of being a sentient being it's a really key part of the path also because it it's through that quality of intention or volition we not only direct our attention you know singling out what to attend to or be aware of we direct our actions you know a body speech and mind and so that becomes the whole field of karma or volitional action so i'll talk about that tomorrow night what this whole field of karma is and how through practice and sustained attention that force of intentionality gets gets smoothed down somewhat, gets refined and gets uh, developed out of more wisdom. Thank you.
Yeah, I mean, it's quite possible. Could everybody hear the, the comment? The comment was that um, in that video where the gorilla appeared, but some people didn't notice it, likely that information was fed into our brain and our neurology and was, was known at some level, but we just didn't tune into or perceive it. And maybe, therefore, knowing is permanent. I think I would say that it may be the activity of knowing is permanent, but what is known keeps changing. And so with each one, there's kind of a new moment of knowing, new moment of knowing, new moment of knowing. But the activity may be ongoing out of this um, unceasing, the unceasing nature of the, of the agent or the mind. Let me just finish up one piece and then we'll open it up for, for general questions. So the question is then, you know, some people like this model, some people really don't like this model. Whether you believe it or not, it can still be a skillful means in meditation. In other words, this guided meditation that we did this morning on the big mind can work whether or not you believe there's such a thing as Buddha nature, whether you believe there's any ongoing quality to mind. And the way that you can use it, if that meditation is helpful, is basically to tune into the quality of awareness. And if you can see the awareness and the emptiness together, you know, the spaciousness, this lack of fullness, the fact nothing's been there from the beginning, you kind of understand that everything that's arisen can or will pass away, then that's another avenue to this emptiness of self or freedom from clinging. So one of the main things that happens for me when I turn back to look at awareness itself is clinging drops. Now, if it's very strong, then it won't. But in a lot of cases, if the clinging is weak to medium and I turn back and look, that drops the clinging. So it can be simply a skillful means to empty the self through releasing some kind of grasping or clinging. So please try it in that way if this appeals to you. So how could you do it as a meditation practice? At any point, there doesn't need to be clinging there first. At any point, you can do that turning toward awareness. And there are a few ways to do it. One is to kind of look back. You know when Ajahn Sumedho talked about not being able to see his eyes? What would it be to look at what is seeing? So you can ask, who is seeing? And that's kind of a way to get back to that uh, sense of awareness. Another way is this spaciousness that we talked about with the big mind meditation, getting in touch with the big field of awareness, the space-like quality. Sometimes a word that works for people is simply aware of awareness. That does that turning, turning back. So explore some different ways, see what works for you. And then if you want to practice with it as a practice, you can make that turning, kind of notice that empty, aware presence, and then just rest there. And as you rest there, as Ajahn Jimnian was describing, everything can come and go. But this place of, of knowing, as he said, is the place of the deathless. That's always available. 
Anytime you want to drop into that, that's there. So it has kind of an undying quality. So in that place of rest, everything comes and goes, but you're not moved, you're not stirred by them. Then, from you know, sooner or later, some kind of grasping will happen again. Some kind of configuration of self will come. When that happens, notice it. If sometimes just the noticing of it will release it and you're back into that emptiness. Other times that won't happen. And in that case, turn the attention back to awareness again. So develop a technique. This part of it is a technique of turning the attention to notice awareness. Once you've looked, then some seeing happens. This is the moment that's like the koan or the not knowing or the just looking. Then just rest there. You don't need to do anything from that place. But awareness still happens, knowing the things arising and passing. So that's a sequence. Notice the awareness, the empty quality. Rest there. If a formation of clinging or grasping or selfing happens, turn and look again and rest again. So that's a way to use this as a meditation technique. Okay. So at this point we can open up if there are questions. We'll put these on the mic. Sarah? Um, I think it's on. Is it working? Yeah, it's working. Okay. Um, So I'm wondering if there's a next step because for me, um, the last few years has been about not noticing awareness, but then going to, and who am I? Hmm. And then noticing that I am my, I am that awareness. So then, um, I'm still sensing a duality in the speech here. And I'm, um, uh, curious if there's then um, <laughs> coming to and and who am I um, in that I mean earlier it's funny because earlier I was going to say well how about using the word mystery versus um, mind as the agent and then you use the word nirvana it's like okay that's closer mm-hmm. for me so um for me, it's the mystery, and then what am I? I don't know. It's just that's been the, the exercise and the inquiry for me for the last 10 years is who am I? And then realizing that. it, And I can go in and out of that, but coming back to the awareness still feels duality versus, well, who am I? Oh, I am that. And then that eliminates the duality for me. So the question, the comment was about awareness introducing a duality. I guess I see it a little differently. I think that you know awareness and what it knows seem to always come together. There are always awareness and something being known together. 
like we were talking about the, you know, the bell. Is it round or is it gold? It's got two aspects. But there's just one thing happening. So it doesn't, I don't see the intrinsic duality of awareness and phenomena. We can discriminate the two sides of that. But they, they come as a single experience. I guess that's the way I would express it. Um, so you, you see it as the same. It, you're, you're saying that we're saying the same thing? Is that what you're saying? Well, I, I'm not sure that we're mm-hmm. saying exactly the same thing. But the duality, maybe you could say a little more, what duality do you see in this description with awareness? I guess I just see there's still a separation between this idea of me and then awareness. And so how does one reconcile that? And to reconcile it, I ask the question, who am I? Mm-hmm. And then that helps uh, bring the, it's just like duality disappears. Boom. I, I am that. I, I actually am that awareness. I am the, the, the phenomenon that is there that is resting in that mm-hmm. that creates everything too like yeah there's just all of a sudden no separation not that I live in that place 24 right. 7 at all but the inquiry for me goes to who am I versus rest going back to what is awareness mm-hmm. it feels like that's still there's still like a millimeter of, of separation going on I guess I'd say from uh from a Buddhist point of view, the I, if we say I am awareness, the I isn't actually necessary. You know, there's awareness and there are phenomena, but we don't have to place the I either in the phenomena, which is what we usually do. This body is me, that car is mine, or in the awareness. You know, there's a tendency in doing this kind of practice to identify with the witness or the awareness, and we say, oh, now I realize I'm not the objects, but I'm the consciousness. But from the Buddhist teaching, that would just be identifying with another aggregate, identifying with the aggregate of consciousness rather than the individual objects that consciousness is illuminating. And that's why in the Buddha's description of the aggregates, there's not a need to place an eye anywhere. So we don't have to say that we're the objects. We don't have to say we're the owner of the objects. We don't have to say we're the consciousness. We don't have to say we're the owner of the consciousness. It's just all these different factors of mind and and materiality coming and going and interacting. So I would just look at it from the point of view, is the I a necessary piece of that? And maybe it's not. Nikki had her hand up. Thank you, Guy, for an excellent talk. Um, My question is a follow-up to the question that the gentleman over there asked earlier um, about will and volition. So given that um, uh, intention is conditioned and everything everything else is conditioned, um, so how does that leave space for free will? And I have heard in the past, in, in Buddhist talks, that there is space for, for free will. So how is that 
clause available, even given that everything is conditioned? So, is there free will or not? Um, yeah, yeah. We, we have four minutes, so you know, no, no problem. You know, obviously this is a big philosophical question through the ages. And the more one investigates this factor of volition, the more one sees the conditioned quality of it. And it really starts to undermine one's belief in free will. But one goes, if one goes in the other direction and says that everything's deterministic, the Buddha analyzed this one and he said what that leads to is a lack of effort. We give up trying because there's an idea of fatalism and we feel we can't influence the, the stream you know, of intention, therefore of karma, therefore of outcome. So that's not a useful uh, view to hold uh, either. So what I found on the path is it's useful to act as though there's choice. And we find that one of the factors that influences volition more and more is the factor of wisdom. As we understand how the path works, then that understanding starts to bear on the arising of volition and the discernment about which volitions to follow and which to drop. So the, the, course, the course works if we act as though we have that choice. And the growth in the factor of wisdom, the spaciousness of mind that comes from the meditation, gives us more of a feeling of choice in it. And then the path unfolds. So without being able to resolve totally the question of free will or not, it's good to act as though there's choice. Also in the back. And this will be our last, and then we'll move into walking. Uh, If you do believe, whatever the theory, it does point to conditioning the mind or development of the mind, and that would suggest free will uh, and uh, that's what whatever the theory that's what we're talking about in this retreat is is conditioning and moving forward yes conditioning the mind in wholesome ways training it in wholesome ways yes thank you one more question Uh, I just would like to ask, where would Nagarjuna come down on the idea of the permanent mind? I think he would toss it out. <laughs> one, uh, the one Mahayana school that doesn't tend to endorse this view are the people called Madhyamikas who are followers of Nagarjuna. He was pretty relentless in his pursuit of emptiness. Okay. So we have uh, about five minutes before interviews begin, and uh, this is a walking period, and then uh, the next sitting at 11.30. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org.
dot org slash donate.